1: Underworking power in the power. Incredible, as they seem, are not the results of massive hysteria. You may wish to adjust the dial. You're currently tuned into the wrong station.
0: bar doesn't exist anymore, but it was called Blood and Golden Sap, down on Lansdowne before the strip gentrified. And you had to go in through the back laneway, lit here and there by guttering orange lights. The kind of place you'd expect to be murdered, but some of us are into that. Then, you'd come across an unmarked fire door, propped open by a chunk of cinder block, and duck through to find a red womb, a humid cloister smelling faintly of Vodka and other people's sweat. Murmuring voices. Couples leaning toward each other over low tables in the alcoves, touching hands. Nineteen dollar drinks in pre-inflation money. And one night, in the darkest alcove near the back, Mihail. The red light suited him. He was very tall, quite dark, but with gray, surprising eyes. Dressed in all black that faded into the clots of shadow behind him. His long legs spread out underneath the table, and, instead of general issue second hand docks, he wore knee high cavalry boots all piped with bloody trim. He didn't rise to meet me, but reached out a long arm to shake hands, his grip firm but cold. Well, it was midwinter outside. Mihail, was all he said. Then, he flicked two fingers in the bartender's direction without even looking. Did you just order for me? Too old-fashioned? He had a dry way of talking, accent Americanized like someone who'd learned English from old U.S. sitcoms. Uh, Usually, yeah, but I'll allow it. Just this once. Agreeable, but boundaried. That's how I always tried to be. I'll play ball, but don't you try to push me around. Even though the bar was slammed, our drinks arrived almost immediately. Mihail must have had some pull. Two crystal tumblers of bloody black liqueur. Uh, what is it? Bess and Jennifer. It's a specialty. Can't find it anywhere else in the city. I raised the glass to my lips. A tentative kiss. What I found was some kind of fruit gin. Tart. Sugary. Acetone. I could get fucked up on this. He laughed. Then I'm forgiven for ordering. I decided he was. With a shrug, I downed the tumbler and tossed two fingers at the bartender. Mihail laughed again. (laughs) Did you just order for me? I leaned forward, chin on hand, giving him the look. You know the one. You'll allow it just this once. Our second round went quick. We lingered over the third, having decided we liked each other enough to spend some time. So, what do you usually do all day? I asked. Usually I sleep till 4 p.m., "'Then what do you do all night?' "'He smiled, leaned back. "'Well, that's different,' he said. "'So, I've got this orb, right?' "'Wonderful. A bit. I played along. "'Made of crystal, by any chance?' "'No, no, no. Just obsidian. "'Ooh, how restrained. "'And all night, every night, I'm staring into this orb. "'As one does. What's inside?' An elegant gesture. Chaos. I hesitated, trying to think of an interesting response. The best I could manage was... (laughs) Classic orb. Classic orb, he agreed. But sometimes, if I stare long enough, the chaos falls into focus and it shows me something... horrible. A massacre or genocide, some atrocity of the past. I thought about this for a moment taking a pool of Bess and Jennifer, letting the heavy liquid roll across my tongue. I have to tell you, I said at length, it sounds like this orb of yours sucks. (laughs) He laughed. It's actually not my favorite, but you do what you have to. Right, you do. Now remind me, what's this orb a metaphor for again? This time, his smile was bashful, slightly embarrassed, I'm a grad student. <clears throat> History. At last, a weakness. I leaned over the table, looking him dead in the eyes. It sounds incredibly exciting. For the flicker of a moment, his eyes widened. Stung. Hm, I'd scored a point. Then he rallied, settling deeper into the shadows so only his teeth caught the bloody light. I didn't realize I was boring you. I shrugged, flicked hair over my shoulder. I guess I could survive it if you kept talking. He resurfaced into the red light. Why? A touch of hope in his voice. Am I speaking your language? Eh, something like it. Double major, art history and classical civ. He grinned. So you're a bartender? <laughs> His turn to score a point. I took the higher ground. I, I declared, contain multitudes. Now he leaned forward. The red light of the candle bled up over both our faces. Well, then, I'll keep speaking your language, if you'll survive. Any of your multitudes ever hear about the Devsherma system? Ooh, it sounds electrifying also sometimes called the Ottoman blood tax. That brought me up short. Taxes were boring, famously. Blood taxes, on the other hand? Well, you didn't hear about those every single day. Okay, I said. You've got my attention. What is the Ottoman blood tax? Well, no one really calls it that anymore. They weren't going around with buckets. This made me laugh, and for the first time, he seemed to relax a little. Listen up. Warm up. He went on. The Defshirma was a recruiting system for unfree soldiers and bureaucrats in the Ottoman Empire. Unfree? You mean slaves? A vague gesture. Yes, but not like the slave trade. Boys taken by the Defshirma were destined for status and prestige. You could even become Grand Vizier. Not the same as getting crushed to death in a sugar mill. But still, you're taken from your home, forced into a life you didn't choose. He looked suddenly weary, like I'd reminded him it was all real, not just some story from a book. Yes, you're very right about that. I didn't let the silence linger. I've learned by now you have to charge right through. So, what fresh insights have you discovered about the Divshirma? Suddenly, he was animated again. I'm looking at the people who went home after. Boys whose villages sent them off to Istanbul at eight years old, who came back after decades in the Ottoman army. Janissaries. Elite slave soldiers. They must have seemed so alien, so frightening to their own families. Just imagine. You're a little kid and your big brother gets taken away by people you think are literal devil-worshippers. You mourn, move on, grow up, and start a family. Then suddenly, 30 years later, he shows up on your doorstep, and he's a scary person now, probably killed dozens of people, maybe hundreds. You don't even know him anymore. It's like, it's like he's come back from the dead. Oh, like a vampire or something exactly his eyes, bright we were connecting interesting that Transylvania was in the Ottoman orbit for so long that Vlad Dracula himself was a child hostage at the Ottoman court is that your thesis then? I laughed that, um, what you call them that that the Janissaries are vampires? he thought about that other way around, he said I finished my third drink, shook my head. I take everything back. So far as theses go, it's sexy. He leaned back into the red shadows, looking pleased with himself, as dark hair fell across his face. In that moment, I didn't think I'd ever been out with someone so good-looking. Should we order another round? If you want to. I thought for a moment. No. No. I think that we should get the check. Out through that unmarked steel door and into the cold. The blowing, gritty snow. Under the orange lights, he was more solid than I'd thought. Not lean, but square under his black denim jacket. Did you ever work in a factory or something? He looked surprised by the question. No. It was bitterly cold. I fed my arm through his and pressed close against him for warmth, but felt nothing. Tell me about one of your vampires, I asked. Are you sure? None of them are happy stories. Eh, happy stories aren't interesting. Well, all right. He hesitated for a moment, wind chimes murmuring in one of the backyards as we passed. I'll tell you about Musa. Mm, tell me about Musa the whole city quiet as we walked together down that dim-lit laneway. We don't know his real name. Musa was the name his foster family gave to him in Anatolia. By the time he arrived at the Enderun School in Istanbul, he may not have even remembered the name his parents gave him. 1498. That's when we think he was born, which means he was only 17 when he turns up at the Battle of Chaldiran, a child soldier, by our standards. Chalderon. The name had a strange taste, like something half-remembered. An apocalyptic battle. A victory for the Janissaries, but Musa would have lost friends. Probably many of them. Wave after wave of fanatical Kieselbosch horsemen charging down upon them. Red hats and white coats. The gleam of sunlight hard on the lance points. That sight would have stayed with him his entire life we turned from the laneway into the street. All empty. A bit of hard snow whipping through the power lines. He kept talking, and his story had a mesmerizing effect. The strange names and images of distant lands all mingling up with half-forgotten Orientalist paintings seen in the back corners of some museum or other years ago. Two years later, Musa turns up in Egypt. Selim the Grim's conquest of the Mamluks. A few more stunning victories, which Musa would have been a part of, leaving him a hardened veteran by 20. He'd have developed a taste for blood by then. Then westward with Selim's son, Suleiman The capture of Belgrade, 1521. Rhodes, 1522. 60,000 dead of sickness outside the walls, but Musa survived and entered the citadel in triumph. At 28 years old, another apocalyptic battle, this time against the Christians. The Battle of Mohach in Hungary. A bloodbath. A massacre. A decisive win. <laughs> Could anybody still be human after all of that? This feels like the high point of the story, I said. What happened next? Highest point or lowest? 3 years later, the siege of Vienna. A disaster for the Ottomans. After that, we lose sight of him. Did he die? We have no records. Maybe he died, maybe he defected, back across the border to Wallachia, where he was born. Maybe he found a way to deal with a taste for blood. That sounds nice. That's the version that I choose. Does it? Remember earlier, the family with the dead man turning up at dinner? By now, we were outside the subway station. It's hard yellow light blurring out into the snow, its warmth beckoning. I was very cold. Well, here we are, he said. Tonight was fun. I thought so, too. I looked up at him, into his strange, gray eyes. I don't feel like going home yet. He met my gaze, but it was difficult to read his expression. Reluctance? No, something more than reluctance. Almost... Here, I should probably turn in. I thought he was just playing hard to get, and so I played hardball. I stepped in close and stood on my tiptoes to whisper in his ear. I thought you liked to sleep in late. For a moment, he almost recoiled. Maybe he was less experienced than I thought. M- maybe I needed to pump the brakes. But then, with a sort of resignation, he bent and kissed me his mouth cold with the winter, tasting of Bess and Jennifer. A hard, good kiss. That's my place, he said, uh, just a few doors down. Interesting. Would you like to come up for a drink? I smiled and pulled away, playing coy. I guess I could survive it. Mihail's apartment one of those old Victorian homes all carved into a dozen different gerrymandered units, winding warrens, strange turns, odd angles, and abrupt rooms. Through the shared entrance and narrow front door, a hard right turn led us into a yawning kitchen with unexpected gothic windows of pebbled glass. The walls, dark red. The cracked old tile floor, all motley black and white. At the huge kitchen table, weathered oak. A man, about our age, sat with his feet up, polishing what appeared to be the disassembled parts of a matched set of pearl-handled revolvers. He had sandy, curly hair and chilly eyes that locked onto us the moment we walked in. My, um, roommate, Tadeusz, said Mihail. He hails from foreign lands. Tadeusz stared for a moment, then nodded once and went back to polishing the steel and chrome. Are those... guns? You don't come across too many in Toronto. "Uh, He's a restorer, Mihail said quickly. Old weapons. Museums and private collections and stuff. Ah. Very cool. The thin line between a strange hobby and an interesting job. How'd you get into that? Tadeusz shrugged without looking up. Family. Mihail looked anxious. My room's this way. I followed him down a long, dark, winding hall. Call if you need anything, Tadeusz said behind us. At the end of the hall, a small room, a student's room, a double bed and blackout curtains and a desk with a lamp that cast a low gold bubble of light when he flicked it on darkness in the upper corners. For a moment, we sat, perched on the edge of the bed. I tucked hair behind my ear, and then we were on top of each other, tasting the cold, acetone fruit on each other's tongues. And he had his freezing hands underneath my sweater, and I was pulling off his jacket, and he was biting my neck gently as he fumbled with the clasps of my bra. Then, very suddenly, he pushed me away and stood. I'm sorry. A strained edge to his voice. I can't do this. Then, before I could ask what he was talking about, he had blown out of the room, leaving me alone in the cold and half-darkness, half-dressed and in a shameful state. I lay on my back for a moment, staring up at the dim red ceiling, breathing heavily. Then I put my hands over my face and let out a single sob before sitting up and putting my clothes back on. It didn't take long, not the first time for me. That fucking apartment wasn't built to code, no back exit. Otherwise, I'd have snuck out and never once looked back. As it was, I had to creep back down the long dark hall I'd almost skipped along just minutes before. In the dim kitchen up ahead, Tadeusz was speaking in a low voice, and Mihail was sobbing. Wet sounds and the sound of crinkling plastic. I paused at the threshold. Tadeusz glanced up with something almost like sympathy in his cold eyes. He stood. I'm going outside for a cigarette. He flicked his eyes at the table, where a cold six-gun rested, heavy edges digging at the wood. You won't need that, he told me. But it's there for you, if that helps you feel safe. A stunning thing for someone to say. I had no idea what to make of it, and Tadeusz was gone before I could even shape the question. And so, I just stood there, with Mihail sobbing out of sight around the corner in the kitchen, and a beam from the old pot lights gleaming against the pearl-handled gun. I prepared myself for whatever sight was waiting in the kitchen. Stepped through and realized I hadn't been prepared at all. I found the tiled floors awash with blood, uneven, so it all pooled a half inch deeper near where Mihail was slumped against the wide refrigerator door, washed out by its flat yellow light, and covered, no, drenched in blood from neck down to his thighs. There were scraps of soft plastic in his teeth and a ruptured, bloody ivy bag in either hand. He'd bitten into each of them like an apple. God knows how much he'd managed to get down his throat. It looked like most of the blood had wound up on the floor, but he was sobbing to himself with shame, like he'd broken some sort of promise to himself. At the sight of me, he looked away and moaned. I'm sorry. I'm so fucking sorry. He tried to wipe some of the blood from his face, only managed to make himself look more ghastly as it smeared. I shouldn't have brought you into this. I'm in no condition. Shouldn't even be seeing people right now. Speechless. Silent. Shocked as much by his pathetic transformation as by the sight and metallic smell of blood. I still can't believe I just stood there. You think of yourself as the sort of person who survives, who runs or screams or fights when they find themselves in a situation like that. But I just stood there. And after a few moments, heard my own voice asking the stupidest question of my life. Am I in danger? This just brought another wave of sobs. No. Uh, Yes. No. I thought you weren't, but then you were, and Tadeusz would have shot me again before anything. He trailed off. But I should have known better. You shouldn't even be here. I'm in no condition. To my surprise, I found myself sitting on the edge of the table. I felt the urge to go to him. Might even have done it, except for that mode of blood. Ever the codependent, I suppose. He looked so miserable. They always do. In a soft voice, I said at last, Then why am I here? And then, putting things together, added, Musa? He raised clawed hands to cover up his eyes. The sudden gestures and drops of blood across the floor. Because I'm lonely. And so tired of being lonely, being cold. I only wanted to feel warm. Only for a little while. I didn't know what to say. Like I said before, I wanted to comfort him. But I was past being that person. Just barely, anyway. Eventually, I did speak. And what I settled on was... I'm just gonna go. Slit my boots on, grabbed my jacket and my purse, was out the front door as his arm bent backwards into the fridge and pried loose another sack of blood. I closed the door behind me and leaned back against it, breathing out. Blue moonlight and gritty blowing snow. That feeling that I've come to know so well. The relief you feel getting out. There was blue smoke rising from a broken chair on the balcony beside me. Tadeusz. Why do you hang out with him? He waited a moment before answering. Eh, pays well. You shouldn't let him out like that, I said. Tadeusz shrugged. He's a grown adult. He needs to get his shit together. Tadeusz wasn't even looking at me, just slowly chain-smoking as he stared across the street An empty lot. A pit to be developed. Who doesn't? (sighs) Prick. I shoved my hands in my pockets and hunched my shoulders against the cold and trudged down the steps. I'm sorry he made it your problem, Tadeusz called out after me. I flipped him off and made my way with ringing footsteps down towards the subway stop, swearing under my breath. The crystal curses rising like cigarette smoke against the (gasps) streetlights. Shit. I said it to the empty street. (sighs) Shit. (sighs) I really liked him. But the night was dead and silent. The air was very cold. And I had blood on my shoes.
1: The Wrong Station is made possible with the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Patrons can listen to The Wrong Station ad-free, as well as get access to bonus episodes, discussions, and more. This week's episode, Janissaries, was written by Alexander Saxton and performed by Marta Silva. Thank you to Chris, Trey Lost, Hattie, Joshua McGowan, and Mischievous Pixie for helping us keep the lights, well, off. Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte-Spiel, with music composed and performed on the piano by Ilan Citrin, and arranged for the viola and performed by Viola Schmidt. You can follow The Wrong Station on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and email us at therongstation at gmail.com. And until next time, thank you for listening.